Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you today. Uh, thank you, music team, for leading us in worship this morning. That song, as you'll hear when we read our passage, um, that song borrows a lot of language from our passage this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, if you can find one in the pew in front of you, we're going to be in Psalm number 148. Uh, today we're wrapping up our series in the Psalms, so next week we'll be jumping back into Matthew. And even though I've only been here for part of the psalm series, I'm always struck going back through the psalms. One of my favorite things about them, and really about the Bible as a whole, is that they give us a language for our prayers that we would often think are out of bounds with God. Uh, the, the psalms give us a raw, honest, very candid language for our prayers that sometimes shock us, as probably last week's psalm did. The Psalms surprise us because they tell us to handle our emotions very differently than how we're prone to handle them and how the world maybe teaches us to handle them. The Psalms don't teach us to stuff our emotions. They don't tell us to sweep the difficult realities of life in a fallen world under the rug. They don't tell us to numb out and avoid uncomfortable feelings. But they also don't teach us to just give full vent to our emotions to any poor, unfortunate soul that happens to be in close proximity, right? And that's always the byproduct of our stuffing emotions is that it just eventually spills out onto someone else. We really don't know how to process and even deal with the emotions that come up in a fallen world. And so what Psalms, what Psalms do is they give us a better way to deal with our emotions. The Psalms reveals what God wants for us to do with our emotions and all the realities of life in a fallen world, which is to bring them to God in prayer, joy and sadness, grief and hope, praise and bewilderment, lament and lavish worship. God wants it all from us. And the Psalms give us a language for that. Today, as we wrap up the book of Psalms, we come to a kind of a cluster of Psalms here. The last five are all doxologies. They are songs of praise written for God's people to give us a language for joy and worship. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, Psalm number 148. Psalmist writes this, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Kings of all the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted, his majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him, praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we pray that it would come with power to us, that you would not only give us language for, for our praise, but also that you would give our hearts fuel for that praise as we gaze upon your glory this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, St. Augustine of Hippo, uh, an African theologian from the 4th century, in his book, Confessions, he had this incredible quote. You may have seen it before, floating on Facebook or something, but it says this, You made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. It says, You made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Before coming to know Jesus, Augustine pursued satisfaction in all the usual places. He tried intellectual and academic achievement, sex and romance, making a place for himself in high society. Augustine, like all of us, he had a vacuum in his heart, a vacuum that was searching for glory big enough to fill it. And he looked for his own glory. He looked for glory in all of creation around him and found them all to be lacking. And God orchestrated a series of events in Augustine's life to bring him to the end of himself, including the persistent prayers of his mother. And eventually, God opened Augustine's eyes to see his need for Jesus. And Augustine went from being a skeptic of Christianity to being one of the greatest minds God's ever given to the church. And years after his conversion, when he penned that quote, Augustine was echoing the heart of this psalm. Augustine came to understand that he, along with everything else in the created world, was made by and for God. And he also knew from all of his years of wandering that when we who have been made for God exchange that worship of God for lesser things, like we read in Romans 1, what it creates is havoc. creates disordered hearts that just tend to make a mess of everything around us. He came to realize that the glory he most longed for wasn't found in creation, and it wasn't his own glory, but it was God's. And when Augustine understood that, it transformed him. Over 1,200 years later, in the Westminster Abbey, a group of pastors got together to articulate all the truths of Scripture and condense them down into what we now have as the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. And they articulated this same truth like this. They said, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The great purpose of all creation and humanity within it was to enjoy God and glorify him forever. Here in the psalm, we see this language where that originated. But that wasn't invented by Augustine. It wasn't invented by the Westminster pastors that gathered there. This is what God reveals as the creative purpose for all creation. And the reason why God reveals this to us is to call us away from the lesser worships that end up robbing our joy and corrupting our souls. He reveals the great worship that we were made for so that, as C.S. Lewis said, we would stop playing with our mud, our mud pies in the slum and go enjoy something far better, like a vacation at the beach. We're invited to come and worship God for who he is. And so this morning, we're going to see God praised for four things. Sorry, with Kevin, you get two points. With me, you get four. Sorry. Uh, but let's see God praised for four things. First, we're going to see God praised as the creator of all things, then the ruler of all things, uniquely exalted above all things, and redeemer of all things. So first, God praised as the creator of all things. 
The psalmist begins with an exhortation that sets the theme for the rest of this poem. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. There's two exhortations there at the very beginning. In Hebrew, that word for praise is hallelujah. And then it gives the name of God, not just a generic name for the Lord, but when you see Lord in all caps in your Bible, that's God's covenant name, Yahweh, that he revealed to Moses and to the people of Israel. It's a name for people who know him, the great I am. And so when you put those two words together, that first line there reads, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And he uses a verb there that's intensifying the action. So for us Presbyterians, that's a good thing to know. That whenever the psalmist calls us to praise the Lord, he's calling us to exuberant praise. Dare I say, we might say amen or something or clap, which y'all did that twice today. That was awesome, right? But this is exuberant, lavish praise that the psalmist is calling us to. And then after repeating that phrase, he calls on everything above the earth to praise God. He begins with the angelic hosts and the unseen spiritual realm. And he works his way down to the things that adorn the sky, the sun and moon, the shining stars. And then he has this curious phrase, the waters above the heavens. I don't know if that made an eyebrow go up for you, but that's language from Genesis 1 to describe the rain clouds where water's held. Then he calls on the audience in the sky, both in the physical realm we can see and in the spiritual realm we can't, to praise God. And he gives the reason in verse 5. He says, for you commanded and they were created. Psalmist says, the reason that all created things should praise you is because you made them. Every single thing in the universe, both visible and invisible, owes its existence to the command of God. He spoke, and at the sound of his voice, all of creation willfully, joyfully, immediately existed. If this is true by things in heavens, it's also true by the things on the earth. Verses 7 through 12, he goes on to list these. The great sea creatures, the weather like fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, mountains and hills, fruit trees and mighty cedars, livestock and creeping animals, flying birds. And then he gives the crown jewel of creation, humanity. From the mighty king to the elderly and the little children, he says God made them all, every single thing, owes its existence to the creative, sovereign initiative of God. Just as we heard about salvation, the same thing is true in creation, that God makes the first move. He does it. Because he made everything, everything exists to display his goodness and his glory. But not only is God praised as creator, this is our second point, he's also praised as the ruler of all creation. In verse number 6, the psalmist says, "...and he established them forever and ever." He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. So not only did God create everything, but he's also the one who governs everything by his decree. This means that God didn't merely create the world and then leave it to run its course. Right? There have been people in like our nation's history that would have called themselves deists that believed that and had like the, the watchmaker theory of the universe, that God assembled the universe and made it to run like he wanted to. And then stepped away and took his hands off the wheel. That's not the God of the Bible. It's not the picture we get of who God is. Nowadays, we don't have any people that call themselves deists. We just use words like luck instead, right? But it's this idea that God is hands off. That things are left to chance. They're random. That's not at all the picture we get here. In Genesis 1, when God does create all things from the very beginning, he decided how the universe would function. 
But even more than that, the, the picture we get in Genesis 1, if you go back and read, and it says that the, the world was formless and without void, the picture that's giving of creation is of a chaotic world. So God brought it into existence. Something came from nothing. But then also, what was created lacked structure and order. It was chaotic. And so when God comes and gives order and begins creation, what he's doing is he is setting restraints and limit. He's bringing order to a chaotic world. So the picture of God creating is not just him bringing things into existence, but also subduing it. He separated light from dark, sky from land, and told the oceans where to stop. So this is why science exists. This is why there are patterns that we can observe in the created world is because God set limits so there's a certain predictability to the world. Can you imagine a world where the oceans didn't have a defined place to stop? How terrifying is that? Imagine a world that's like the horror movies that we see come out around Halloween where, uh, where demons and angels can just kind of interfere with the physical world with no restraint. Right? That's a picture of a chaotic world that God has subdued. He has set a decree, and the Bible says that it shall not pass away. Some of your translations may say he set a decree that will never be transgressed or broken. God has set these boundaries, and nothing crosses them. Seeing this reality, that God is the one ruling everything, it's a very helpful corrective for us. As human beings, we tend to think that the world revolves around us, that what matters most is our plan, our happiness, our comfort, our security. We somehow think that the big story going on in the universe, at least in our little corner of it, is our story. That's not at all true. And we know that by our experience. We know that when we try and live that way, like all of life revolves around us, it's an exhausting way to live, and it's incredibly frustrating Passages like this, they rescue us from that futility by reminding us that the big story we're living in is not about us, but about God. That the arc of the history of the universe is not bending towards me and my glory, but towards his. That brings us to our third point. That because God is the creator and ruler of all things, he's also uniquely exalted above all things. Verse 13 it says, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. Because God is the one who created all things, because he is the one who governs all things, he has a unique glory that is not shared with anyone or anything. He bows the knee to no one. He is exalted above everything created. Go back through this list and think, angels. Right, and we see Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah gets to see a picture of heaven, the seraphim, the angels, are flying around the throne singing praises to God. They're not doing their own bidding, but his. Think about all the gospel accounts of Jesus when he was going from town to town. One of my favorite stories is when Jesus encounters the Gerasene demoniac in, uh, I believe it's Mark 15. Jesus encounters this man who has been wandering among the caves, possessed by a demon. He can't be bound by any chains or rope that can be made with human hands. He's just roaming around the caves like a crazy person, completely out of his mind, doing harm to himself and a threat to other people. And when Jesus approaches this man that is so beyond the control of anyone else, the demons cast this man down at Jesus' feet and begin to plead for their existence. 
Please don't cast us out. Please don't cast us out. And they ask his permission to go into a herd of swine. Fallen angels and the angels that are praising God at this very moment, they tremble at the voice of God and they do exactly what they are told. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, we know now, thanks to science, that this universe is ever-expanding, ever-growing. And yet Scripture says that it's held in the palm of God's hand. The mighty clouds with their rain, storms, and hail, they go exactly where God tells them to go. The creatures of the deep, even this Leviathan, whatever that was, answers to God. In Job chapter 41 you remember the, the story of Job in the Old Testament? This is a man who had immense wealth, family, lots of land. And Satan wants to test Job by taking those things away. Again, there's Satan going to God for permission. And God grants that permission. So Satan takes everything, but he's not allowed to take Job's life. And as Job laments, as he goes back and forth with his friends for 39 chapters, at the very end of the book, God answers Job. And he begins to go through creation talking about his sovereignty. It says, where were you? Were you there when I set the boundaries of the ocean? Were you there when I put the stars in the sky? Were you? And he goes through this list and he gets to the Leviathan. And God tells Job that the Leviathan is like a cute pet to him. Like, like something you put on a leash and give to your daughter, like a little puppy. In the ancient Near East, nature was often deified as a list of gods. So it's no wonder that the writer lists all these forces in nature out that people would have been tempted to worship. But unlike the surrounding pagan cultures, the psalmist doesn't call God's people to worship nature, as incredible as it is. What the writer wants them and wants us to do is to see the glory of God displayed in nature and realize that it is a borrowed glory. It's a derived glory. Nature in and of itself does not possess glory. It gets it from its creator. And so what we're meant to do is to trace that glory back upstream to see the glory of God in all of creation. Now, here's my soapbox. I'm going to step on the soapbox for a minute and I'll come back. This is kind of my beef with like cable news, popular Christian music, and popular Christian movies. Is There's always this idea that somehow God is in a really tight battle with something or someone. So you hear this in pandering politicians... You see it in movies about angry atheists in the classroom of universities everywhere, right? That somehow there is a war going on out there, and God's in real trouble. And so it's up to us. We've got to take the bull by the horns. We've got to bail God out of trouble. Step back off the soapbox. Guys, that's not the case. God's not sweating anything. He's not worried about anything. No one's going to him and asking or he's not going to anyone and asking for advice. God bows the need to no one. There is nothing in the universe that makes this a fair fight. Nothing. God has set his decrees. He gets his way. And he governs all things for the good of his people and his own glory. And those two things always go hand in hand. And it's why we get to be, as Paul calls us to be, a sober-minded presence in the world. We don't have to have the craziness that the rest of the world has because we know who's in charge. And that's not even the best part. We could go home right there. But verse 14 is where the psalm really crescendos. Verse 14. He said, He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints. For the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. 
psalmist tells us that God has raised up a horn for his people. The imagery is used over and over again in Scripture to depict an animal after, uh, after battling another animal. You get this image of like a bull raising his horns in victory after the victory is accomplished. The victory that God works is for his own people, for Israel, people he was in relationship with. As we've walked through the Psalms, we've talked about Israel's history, their fall to Babylon, their exile. This psalm is them anticipating redemption. It's the cry of a people who did not want their defeat to be final. But what the scriptures teach us over and over again was that the greatest enemy Israel needed to be saved from was not Babylon. It wasn't Assyria or Rome. No, the great oppressor for all of humanity is sin. This has been true of all of us since Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. What was the essence of their disobedience? Well, we read it this morning in our confession of sin. Adam and Eve at the very beginning exchanged the worship of God for lesser things. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to receive the glory, not him. And when that happened, it plunged all of humanity and indeed all of creation into misery. So that exchange of worship had massive ramifications for all of us including all of creation, so that Romans in Romans chapter 8 says that even now creation groans. This creation that was made to praise God now groans, waiting for God to come back and fix it and make it right. And thankfully, God kept his promise. He did send a redeemer. He did raise a horn of salvation for his people. God sent his son, the true Israel, where the first Israel had failed in the face of opposition and difficulty They regularly exchanged the worship of God for lesser things. They failed to praise God as they should have, but not the true Israel. Jesus, in the face of unspeakable suffering and opposition, he stayed the course, never once exchanging the glory of God for lesser things. And he accomplished salvation for his people by dying in their place, taking their record of broken praise and giving us us his record of perfect praise. But not only did he die, but he was raised from the dead on the third day. And what scripture tells us, when Jesus was raised from the dead, what he did was nothing less than begin this work of recreating all things. This is the new creation taking place. One of my favorite books to go back and revisit is uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you've ever read that book, it's awesome. You've probably seen the movie, right? But whenever the Pevensey kids go through the wardrobe into Narnia... One of the first things they discover is not just that it's a bitter cold winter, but also that all of the creatures there speak. Every animal they encounter speaks about the misery they're currently experiencing and whispering about this Aslan who would come back to make it right. What Lewis is hitting on is this reality that all of nature is longing for the return of its king. And just like in the Chronicles of Narnia, what ends up breaking the spell of our winter, what ends up breaking the curse of sin... It's not what we would expect. It's not what the evil witch expected in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's the king coming and dying. That's what undoes the curse. And when that happens, it begins to thaw the winter. Spring begins to take place and new creation dawns. And so for us, when we receive this work of Jesus with empty hands of faith, we get grafted into the true Israel, the vine that is Jesus does two quick things for us, and we'll finish here. First, I want you to see that this cult praise, it reframes the mission of the church. It reframes the mission of the church that if 
All created things were designed to praise God, to make much of him. That is why we as the church do what we do. It's why we evangelize. It's why we make disciples. All of that is because we want God to receive maximum praise from as many people as possible. We want people to come to know Jesus to make much of God. Second thing it does, it also begins to help us along for the return of Jesus. Revelation 21, and we'll close here. At the end of the story, we get this picture of heaven, and we see what John sees. It's what John says, Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. We get to see the end of the story, and what we see is a victorious king who fulfills the promise and potential of Psalm 148. The creation, a new humanity that has been redeemed and brought near to sing the praises of Jesus. This morning, the invitation is for you and I to drop all of our praise for lesser things and come to Jesus and embrace a worship that actually satisfies the deepest longings of our heart, even as we await for him to finish the work that he started in making all things new. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming and bringing this new creation in. Lord, we pray that our our hearts even now would be set on worship, that the posture of our hearts would be bent on enjoying and making much of you in all that we do, not just on Sunday mornings, but with every single part of our lives. Lord Jesus, help us to wait expectantly for your return and for the renewal and redemption of all things. Pray it in your name. Amen.